Lord God, thank you for this beautiful, beautiful morning. Thank you for the sun. Thank you for the life that you give us. Thank you for uh, the food, the clothing, the shelter. Thank you for all of the beautiful things that we see and experience in this creation. God, even in its corrupt, perverted state, where it is experiencing the corruption due to sin, there is much beauty and also much power in your creation. And God, we can see not only in, in our own lives and in the world around us, we, we see um, the effects of sin, and we can see the, the twisting and the perversion of justice, and we can see the hardship and suffering of humanity and of this earth. We see things falling apart. We see a planet that is deteriorating. We see lives that are being destroyed. And so, God, we, even in our finite ability to comprehend, uh, we can see just great destruction, and in our spirits, we cry out for justice, and we cry out for deliverance, and we cry out for help. And God, we know that in your infinite capacity to know and understand, you see your creation, everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And it is a suffering for you. The scriptures say you suffer long in viewing the suffering and evil on this earth. And so God, as we long for the redemption of creation. We know that you long for it uh, at a much more infinite capacity to long. And so, God, we, uh, as we study this, we pray that you would give us insight into your mind, that we would develop the mind of God, that you could help us to understand the importance of a coming day of judgment, of, of not just in the destruction of evil, but in the bringing of a, of a new world and a new heaven. And we recognize that, that judgment must be a part of that. So God, give us wisdom to, these, to understand these texts, and I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we talk of judgment, we automatically have a few contemporary challenges to the idea. We're going to read some passages, not as long as last week, but we're going to read some passages, and immediately um, we are going to be forced to deal with a worldview and an understanding of things that just flies in the face of, of our contemporary sensibilities, uh, the reality of spiritual beings. We're going to be talking about, continue to talk about the devil, the beast, the false prophet, uh, demonic forces, and uh, we're not going to today get into uh, an apologetic of, of why those things exist. It's just one of the challenges that the biblical understanding of things uh, has against the uh, contemporary culture. Uh, we're also going to run into... Um, what is a, a, a really a, a dilemma of our age um, in regard to moral evaluation. Um, Charles Taylor has written a lot on this, and he describes our contemporary age as being one of, of pursuing uh, authenticity, being true to oneself. It's very common for us especially those with a, uh, a strong biblical moral framework 
to, to judge what we see in the emerging generations as, as lazy or selfish or these kinds of things. Um, and while those things might be true, uh, what we fail to understand is that f- we, we live in a generation that is increasingly seeing um, that being true to oneself, to being authentic, is a moral quality. Uh, Charles Taylor says this, what we need to understand here is the moral force behind notions like self-fulfillment. Once we try to explain this simply as a kind of egoism or a species of moral laxism, a self-indulgence with regard to a tougher, more exigent earlier age, we are already off the track. So he's saying what we can do is we can just kind of dismiss the generations as being selfish and lazy. But that doesn't get to the heart of really what's going on in our day. Talk of permissiveness misses the point. Moral laxity there is, and our age is not alone in this. There's always been moral laxity. There's always been selfishness. What we need to explain is what is peculiar to our time. It's not just that people sacrifice their love relationships and the care of their children to pursue their careers. This is just one example. Something like this has always existed. People have always neglected their responsibilities to pursue something that they feel would be more fulfilling. Something like this has always existed. The point is that today, many people feel called to do this, feel they ought to do this, feel their lives would be somehow wasted or unfulfilled if they didn't do it. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that we are in a generation where um, self-fulfillment is a moral calling. And if that means setting aside responsibilities that you have agreed to fulfill, uh, if that means um, setting aside people that you have promised to love in order to fulfill what you believe to be your calling, then that's okay because the the call to be authentic or self-fulfilling is a high moral standard. So when you talk about judgment um, with, in a generation whose moral high bar is self-fulfillment, you come into a lot of conflict because you get in immediately, who are you to judge me? Who is God to judge me? I am pursuing what I believe to be right in order for me to be authentic. It's a huge challenge. The other challenge, the necessity of an ultimate God and one righteousness. Again, this kind of is the same type of thing. Who's to say that there is one God and one truth? That is obviously a large objection in our culture. So we run into into that. Um, All of these things fly in the face of our sensibilities. And I could spend the time going down those, but what I want to do today is look um, not so much at at defending ourselves against these challenges, but just look at what the judgment is. And so yet, even with these these reactions against the judgment of God, we we can also see in our culture a universal cry for justice and a universal cry for healing and a universal cry to see evil vanquished and the good rule. 
Yesterday, we were at the office, and uh, we didn't know what was going on at the time. So I got to the office a little before 7 o'clock in the morning, and um, there was a huge uh, Planned Parenthood demonstration, which is just, I think, a couple blocks down the street um, from our office. And so there were, I think the police estimated 6,000 people. It was one of the largest ones in the country, actually. Um, 6,000 people at the Planned Parenthood down the road, and you had um, the protesters against ab abortion, which was the initial, I think that was the initial um, march with, were the protesters, but in reaction to the protesters, you have um, the, the, uh, the pro-choice group. And the pro-choice group, I guess, uh, outnumbered the, the pro-life group. But if you look at both sides, now, we do not get into politics Okay, uh, we get into social cultural issues, but we do not address a whole lot of politics or take sides because we, we, you know, we've sp spoken on that before at length. Um, but if you look at the issue of abortion, for example, um, the, the debate comes down to what does it mean to be a person? When is a person a person? Biblically, the scriptures teach that God knew us before the foundations of the world and when he was knitting us together in our mother's womb and that we had unique personalities, unique traits, unique characteristics that God knew of us before we were born. In fact, even before we were in our mother's womb, okay? So that establishes identity and personality, which is personhood, okay? If you believe the Bible, you must see that personhood starts before conception even, which is mind-blowing, okay? I, I understand that that's mind-blowing. But that's the biblical teaching on when, when somebody is a person with identity and characteristics and personality. Now, if you don't believe the Bible and you're on the other side of the argument, you're on the pro-choice side, and you don't believe that personhood does not start until birth, okay, then the issue isn't framed around um, the rights of the unborn, okay? It's, it's framed around the rights of the woman who has a right to choose about what is being done to her body, okay? So you can see both of them now, whether you agree with one side or the other, both of them are arguing for justice, for fairness, okay? It just depends on how you evaluate the terms and how you understand personhood, okay? And so, you, you see what I'm saying? Now, again, there's always two questions. There's the moral issue that's going on in our culture, and then the question that Christians have to ask, what does Jesus say about how we are to deal with these things in our culture? So two different questions. The second question isn't asked as often as it should be. But yet we can see that justice and fairness and righteousness and equity are things that human beings are called, calling for. All right? Whether we agree with where people land on it, is, is, is really not the issue. We can see that people are crying out for justice. And justice is judgment. So today, what I was, again, what I want to look at is the broader issue of judgment, why judgment is needed. Then we're going to spend two weeks on hell. I was 
initially just planning one week, but we're going to need two weeks. Death, hell, Hades, what are they? Why are they important? What does Jesus say? So we're going to actually look, spend some time in the Gospels as well. What does the book of Revelation say? So what I want to look at today is the timing of the judgment. I want to look at the, um, excuse me, the target of the judgment, who is being judged, and I want to look at the truthfulness of the judgment, why the judgment that's being levied is, is righteous and true and fair. And so the first one, the timing of the judgment. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a wa- so we're going to look at like three different passages that are all talking about ju- the, t- the time, the, the, the event of judgment, okay? It's kind of smattered throughout Revelation in a few places. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Does everybody know what a sickle is? A sickle is this, this big, old-fashioned farming device that you would grab a hold of with two hands, and it was used for harvesting uh, wheat and grasses, okay? And you would take it, and you would, you'd swing it around back, and then you would just let it go. It had a big two or three foot long blade on it, and it would cut huge paths of, of wheat in, in, in one stroke. And so that's how they would cut wheat. Uh, now we use combines. Um, so this is an old-fashioned thing. So there's this, this Jesus is who this figure is, this son of man with his sharp sickle. And so they are using the metaphor of harvesting Um, when they speak of judgment. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So the first element I want to look at is the timing of the judgment. And so you have an, a, actually several metaphors going on here. You have the, the wheat harvester and the sickle, but then you have grapes being harvested. And grapes were never harvested with a sickle. To harvest grapes, especially back then, it's, it's, it's a job that you have to do with your hands. And, and today it's still done with hands in the, in the finest vineyards. Um, and so they're kind of mixing the metaphors here, and you have this idea that um, basically it's this. The people of the earth that are being judged are being harvested and being thrown into this place of judgment and being trodden upon like people would trod upon grapes to squash out 
the wine. And so you have that with this, this imagery of blood flowing from this place of judgment that's, you know, five or six feet deep and hundreds of miles long. Okay, so these, are, these are just images. These are just images. The timing of the judgment, I want to look at this idea of the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. God is withholding his judgment until the time is ripe. Most of us, including people in the world, look upon what's going on, and they've been looking upon what's going on in the world for hundreds of years, and asking, when is God going to step in and do something? Bart Ehrman, who is a, a, a popular uh, opponent of Christianity, who used to be a Christian, but he left the faith uh, largely because of this issue, at least in his mind, um, of why is there so much continued injustice and evil and death in the world, and it seems like God is just ignoring it. He says this, we live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation, every five seconds Every minute, there are 25 people who die because they do not have clean water to drink. Every hour, 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all of this? We live in a world in which earthquakes in the Himalayas kill 50,000 people and leave 3 million without shelter in the face of oncoming winter. We live in a world where a hurricane destroys New Orleans. We where a tsunami kills 300,000 people in one fell swoop, where millions of children are born with horrible birth defects, and where is God? To say that he eventually will make right all that is wrong seems to me now to be pure wishful thinking. It's a good question. Where is God? Um, the, the, you know, I mentioned this a few times, and we have the book out there if you want to buy it, or if you're a guest, you can take a free copy of any book on the book table. Um, the, 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 the book Silence and the movie Silence, the silence is referring to the silence of God. Where is God in the face of the persecution of Christians? Where is God in addressing the injustices of this world? And again, it's a good question. I ask it of myself. Not just of these large-scale sufferings, but sufferings we see on a daily basis that just seem senseless. So it's a good question, but I think we also have to ask ourselves the question, are we ready for God's judgment? Are you ready to face God? If he comes in judgment, he's not just going to take care of natural disasters. He's not going to come and just take care of the, the tyrants of this world. You know, the more and more stories are coming, about, coming out about what the Assad regime has done in Syria over the last five years. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people hung in op that were in opposition to him. So it's, God's not just coming under the Assads or the Hitlers of the world. Okay, when God comes to judge evil, he is going to judge all evil. All evil. So we have to ask ourselves, are we ready for God to come and judge us? Are we ready for God to come and judge those of us that we love who are living lives of evil, who are stuck in sin and enslaved to self-destruction and the destruction of those around them? 
as we saw in the, in the four trumpets from a few messages ago. All of these types of things, disease, famine, earthquakes, natural disasters. Revelation chapter 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four horsemen are describing characteristics of God's judgment that, that really began, the kingdom of God began, all right, with Christ's resurrection from the dead, his death and resurrection. And, and since that time, the forces of evil have been against the forces of God, and, and judgment began, and the kingdom of God began. And it will reach a culminating time. But natural disasters of, these, of this magnitude is something that John said, listen, this is part of the judgment of God in disrupting idolatry. C.S. Lewis has got this great quote. He says, and I, I don't, didn't, don't have it for today, but he said, um, there are many people alive in this world that do not experience a whole lot of suffering, a whole lot of pain. Their lives seem to be going on quite well. He says, pain, pain is the thing that God uses to disrupt their lives and their idolatries and to get them to realize that they don't have total control over everything in their life. And where, where, we, where God does not introduce pain into our lives, uh, we are left to just live on in our idolatries. And so we see these types of things, and they are the consequence of a world who has chosen to reject God from the very beginning. We brought corruption and death to the earth. God warned us, if you eat of that fruit, you will bring death to yourselves and to the earth. So we've brought corruption and death to the earth, and the earth is destroying us. Are we ready for God to judge us yet? The scriptures say that God is long-suffering. He, he, he longs to see evil vanquished. He longs to see death finally destroyed. It began with Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And that's when Satan, sin, and death were ultimately destroyed. And we are in the process of things becoming on earth as they are in heaven. Are we ready for God to judge yet? Who is the target of the judgment? Chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed or happy is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So Armageddon um, is a place in Palestine It's called Megiddo, M-E-G-I-D-D-O. And so that's where we get this word in the Greek, Armageddon. And it is an it, you see it through, several times throughout the Old Testament, it is an ancient battleground 
Okay, wars and large wars and large battles were fought there between kingdoms. Now, several places throughout the book of Revelation, you have reference to this great battle, Armageddon, um, but it doesn't always take place at Megiddo. It doesn't always take place in this, in this valley. You can visit the valley. Sometimes it takes place outside of the great city, which is Jerusalem. Sometimes the great city is, is Babylon, but in reference to, in, in regard to the location of the judgment, it's outside of Jerusalem. And so the battle of Armageddon is not literally going to be this, this um, armies on one side and armies on the other in this place at Megiddo. It is going to be a battle between the forces of good and the which are Christ and the angels and the saints in terms of how the book of Revelation envisions them. And then against literally, okay, so it's the, the devil, the antichrist, the false prophet, and all of the nations of the world. And we're going to see in the next passage that it's every human being on the face of the planet. And so there is going to be a global judgment I wanted to include this passage because this is where we get the term Armageddon. And so there's books and movies throughout history uh, that have come out of this idea in reference to this time of global judgment. So evil spiritual forces, the target of the judgment, evil spiritual forces that deceive the world. That's, they are going to be among those judged. We're going to get into the specifics of that more over the next several weeks when we look at hell and death and Hades. We also see that the target is our people that do not repent of the idolatry and wickedness. So in verses 9, chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, we covered it several weeks ago. It said, in the midst of all of this judgment, Natural disasters, earthquakes, famine, pestilence, disease. Um, remember, people did not give up their idolatries or their wickedness or their thefts or their immoralities or their deceptions, okay? People will continue to choose. They, in, instead of responding to the disruptions in the created order, famine, earthquakes, etc., they, they grow hardened, like Bart Ehrman. They grow hardened to God. And they just disavow him. God doesn't exist. If I believe that God doesn't exist, then I don't need to be accountable to him, okay? It's like kids. They don't like what their parents are telling them, so they just kind of ignore what their parents are telling them. Unfortunately, that doesn't remove the kids from the authority of their parents. And their parents will have the final say. And God will have the final say. Whether people believe in God or not doesn't really matter. God will have the final say. And because his timing doesn't work out with our timing, that's God's prerogative. He is patiently enduring long-suffering so that people can come to faith, so that the disruptions in the natural order can yield to repentance, and so more people are a part of the kingdom of God. It is, a, it is a difficult balance that God is weighing. The longer he waits, more people come into the kingdom of God. 
The longer he waits, more injustice and evil is carried out among the planet, among the earth, and amongst the people of the world. What is going to jar us from the deception where we believe that self-fulfillment is a moral ideal? There has to be some judgment. There has to be some pain. There has to be the introduction of hardship. And people whose name was not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. This is another theme that you see throughout the book of Revelation. Those whose name was not written in the book of life. You say, well, who, who has a choice then? If my name wasn't in the book of life even before I was born, there's no chance of me being saved. Well, that's true. But here's the question. How do you know? How do you know your name is not written in the book of life? How do you know your name is? Only God knows the names in that book of life. And the ones who persevere through the end in their faith are the ones proven that their name is in the book of life. And so it really puts the burden on us. We can't just discount it. I mean, it gets into this, you know, the, the, the predestination or free will debate. But again, we don't know. All we are called to do is respond to the message of the gospel and to repent of our sins and to worship and love Jesus Christ. Because that's what the message to us is, and everybody is held responsible for their sin. But for those who don't repent, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And the truthfulness of the judgment is the last question we want to look at. The truthfulness, the righteousness, the fairness of the judgment. Chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, one sitting on it. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His, are, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of, his wrath, of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, Jesus, he has tattoos. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Those are tough images. God is calling out to the birds. Jesus Christ is calling out to the birds. I am getting ready to destroy millions of people. Come and prepare yourselves to eat their flesh. That is a tough image. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered up to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds gorged, were gorged with their flesh. So this is one of the, I think, one of the most stark and violent images in all of the book of Revelation. And so where is the righteousness of that type of judgment? Where is the truthfulness in that type of judgment? Where is the fairness? What warrants that type of judgment and imagery? And I just want to point out two phrases. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. So that's just a statement of the text saying, Jesus is coming and he is going to issue a fair and good judgment. How can he do that? Well, the second phrase, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, you kind of get the sense when you read that, that it's like got a corner of his robe, it's got some blood on it. The word is baptized. Jesus is coming in a robe, not, not with a few blood matter marks on it. He is coming in a robe that is, that is literally dripping and drenched in blood. And it's his blood. And it's his blood. See, God could have ended suffering and established his kingdom when Jesus first came. Remember what Jesus said? Oh, Israel, oh, Israel, how often I have wanted to gather you up like a mother hen with her chicks. But both God's people and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Gentiles, which resembled, so it was, it was the Jews and the religious leaders at the time of Israel and the Roman leadership. So with the Jews and with the Romans, you had the full representation of all humanity. Killed him. Jesus came ready to set up his kingdom. Now, because of God's foreknowledge and his understanding of human nature and of what would need to happen, it was part of the plan. But they made the choice to kill the king. They made the choice to kill God. They made the choice to kill the one who would vanquish all evil and set up a kingdom built upon righteousness and truth and purity and hope and love. But they killed him. Why did they kill him? Because both Jews and Gentiles, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Romans, everybody on the face of the planet chose Babylon. They chose Babylon. What were the Romans deciding? They didn't want the political unrest of, a, of, a, of, a, of Israel, and they didn't want any more people rising up as rebels and creating more political unrest and claiming to be king and emperor and ruler. And, and so they had Jesus, and Jesus was arrested, and Jesus was killed at their hands. The Jews didn't want to lose their political power with Rome, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. They didn't want to lose what they had. They didn't want to lose the peace. They didn't want to lose the, the very profitable and powerful role they had there in Israel. And see, the people in the courtyard, if you remember, several things throughout Jesus' ministry with them Remember they stopped following Jesus because he stopped feeding them? John chapter 6. He stopped healing them, and he stopped feeding them. 
because he saw that they were following him because he would do things for them, okay? Economic security, that's food. Healthiness. So Jesus is good as long as he's providing the things that I really love, which is stability in my life. Stability in your life is not bad. But if you don't recognize that Jesus is the one that is the source of stability in your life, and the ultimate source of stability in this world and in the future world to come, if you don't realize that Jesus is the one that provides that, Jesus is the bread of life, Jesus is the healer, Jesus is the king, and you seek first for those things rather than the source of those things, then you're not going to get any of it. And so they stopped following Jesus when he stopped feeding them. And then at the end, when they called for his crucifixion, it was the crowds that called for Jesus' crucifixion because they were bribed. The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, and the Roman people all cried out to kill their creator. And so Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming as a victim of oppression. Jesus is coming as a victim of the lust for power. Jesus is coming as a victim of idolatry. But Jesus isn't coming back as a baby this time. He's coming back as king. He's coming back as ruler. He's coming back as Lord and creator of all things. And everything that he has created has been destroyed by the people of Babylon who have been deceived by the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet for thousands of years. And so it's fair. Because he created. We are his. Whether we acknowledge that or not won't change the fact. We are his. We did not create ourselves. We did not come here from our own decision making. Nothing on earth came here as a consequence of its own initiative. We cannot answer the question, how did we all get here? We can take it back to the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, but nobody can answer the question of how. How did we all get here? So the answer to that question is, is Jesus. There is a beginning point to time as we know it and a beginning point to our lives, and that is when Jesus initiated his loving initiation to bring us into being. And all of it has been corrupted for pursuit of Babylon. And so Jesus is perfectly justified to bring judgment because his name has been perverted, his creation has been perverted, and he was killed. And so he's coming in a robe that is completely dripping in his own blood, and he's coming back to judge and to put away with evil. Judgment is coming against those who don't worship Jesus as Jesus, who don't worship God as God, and our actions are fruits of our worship. We will do evil when we don't worship Jesus. Even, even those of us who claim to believe in the name of Jesus Christ and who do believe in the name of Jesus Christ are still suffering the same pains that the bigger creation is. Also suffering. We, we long for our fleshly bodies and the fleshly desires to be done away with so we no longer do evil things that hurt ourselves and hurt others. I mean, I, I long for that. I mean, Friday morning, we're having breakfast. 
And something irritated me in the kitchen. And I made a, a mean comment to Anna. Just out of the blue. And immediately I felt with him. I mean, Anna re responded to it graciously. But inside of me, I just felt this disgust. Like, I literally felt, you know, I, I do not deserve to be alive. Who am I to say that to my wife? This is an insignificant thing that made me upset, but it pointed to an idolatry and some long-term sustained things with my own parents. I won't get into it. It's so ridiculous, but I'm not going to get into it. But it was evil. I felt at that moment, why doesn't God just, boom, for that, that little instant. It did no physical harm to her, but it was just evil in its triteness, in its harshness. I don't deserve to be alive. We've got to recognize that. We do not deserve the good. You know, the, the imagery that you get throughout Revelation about God holding back these demonic forces whose sole desire is to kill and destroy, because that is what God is doing, okay? God does not, he, he will bring this judgment and Jesus is bringing this judgment, but most of the judgment that we face throughout this time until Christ returns is God simply loosening up on his hold of evil forces that would completely annihilate us if they could. If they had all of the authority and all of the power, they would just completely annihilate us all at once because they, they, they abhor anything beautiful and good. And there's a lot of beautiful and good. So God is holding back. He didn't strike me dead that Friday morning in the kitchen thankfully. But we deserve it. We deserve it. So, follow Jesus. Repent of sin. Believe that his, his death has paid for your sins so that when the judgment of God comes, your name will be in the book of life and your sins will be forgiven and you will be the ones clothed in white. See, the, the saints whose sins have been forgiven are completely clothed in white. There is no blood on them at all. All the blood is on Jesus' robe because he has borne all of our sin so we could be clothed in white and participate in his kingdom. And see, that's our mission now. We are in the, the, the scriptures teach that we are in the kingdom of God now and that we are that we are ambassadors of the, of, of the king and, and called to bring about the kingdom of God in the spheres that we're in, which is our, our desire in the, in, the, in the jails and with the discipleship home and with all of our, our ministry efforts to people in this world. We're trying to bring the kingdom of God into the lives of those around us and to see sin overcome and, and beauty in the creation of Christ emerge. That's what we're called to do. Let me pray. Lord God, uh, thank you for the, all of these, these images, even the hard ones, uh, for they, they disrupt the idolatries of our lives. And I pray, God, that you would help us to allow that disruption to occur. In Christ's name, amen.